Hey everyone, welcome back to What Can You Do, a podcast dedicated to shedding light on activism and education, especially through the work of youth and educators. Thanks so much for tuning in, even though the vocal quality of the first episode left a little bit to be desired. For those of you hanging in there, I deeply appreciate you. In the following recording, you may hear the sounds of a keyboard typing in a few places as I take notes during the conversation, and all I have to say is, I'm learning, so thanks for your patience. In other news, I've invested in a microphone, so the vocal quality for our next episode should be somewhere higher on the scale of professionalism, so stay tuned. Anyway, on to the good stuff. This week, I had the pleasure of interviewing Matthew Reisman, an APUS history teacher at East Kentwood High School in Michigan. We discuss his ed blog, Anti-Racist APUSH, whose mission is to offer anti-racist pedagogical materials for APUSH classrooms and curriculum, as well as pointers on how to create a more equitable AP classroom. We discuss the impetus for his project, how teachers can use the materials, the politicization of historical curriculum, and what it really means to promote diverse narratives in education. Hope you enjoy it. Okay, so just to kick it off, I'd love if you could tell me a little bit about yourself and your personal background, just both as a person and a history teacher. Okay. Um, And introduce yourself. (laughs) Yes. Um, My name is Matt Vriesman, and I've been teaching U.S. history, world history for 14 years. Um, Most of that in the state of Michigan, but I've also had a really cool opportunity to do some international teaching. So I've taught in South Korea for a few years. um, in Kuwait for a couple of years as well. Um, wow. That experience was very eye-opening for me, especially um, just meeting people from around the world and talking about world history with, you know, um, Korean co-teachers and Arab co-teachers. And um, I, I've always just been, I've always been very interested in the world and other stories outside of my own. I'm from, um, I'm from a very segregated part of West Michigan. So I actually teach in the most diverse high school in Michigan. It's the sixth most diverse high school in the United States, actually. Shout out. (laughs) Um, Which is really great. And I, so I I teach at East Kentwood Public Schools. It's really a fantastic place to be. Mm -hmm. Um, But what's interesting is I was born in the area and I went to uh, private schools. Mm-hmm. my whole life and my even though I'm in this very diverse community my community was very white mm-hmm. um and that also meant that my history classes and, and the folks in my history classes were very white focused um and so for me it, college was the was the major eye-opening experience um same for me so I was I started reading different views on American history for the first time in my life and I started for the first time in my life to see that maybe some of the views that I, I grew up with and was sure that that was the side of moral, you know, justice mm-hmm. um, were potentially not only not on the correct side of moral justice, but perhaps working against mm-hmm. um, some of the issues of justice that I, you know, now, you know, really want to, to make the focus of what I do. Right. Um, so college was, college was definitely eye-opening. That's where I really started. Wow, there is a huge world out there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, had, I, I was, um, how do I say this? How do I say this? Um, I'm very thankful for my upbringing. I just had, I had a lot of love and um, a lot of support and you know, everything I needed. It was fantastic, but 
it was really in college where I started to realize, okay, but maybe there's a little bit more to the story. Right? Well, of course, you can be thankful for what you had and recognize that there's more gaps that can be filled in as you right. kind of come into contact with different people and different experiences. And so I, I would definitely say going to college, uh, taking U.S. history. I mean, I, I always loved history. Um, yeah, I was going to ask, like, why, why history in particular? Yeah. What drew you to that? I mean, so I, I have always loved history. And my family, would, you know, we'd, we'd go to um, specifically I loved battle sites. Mm -hmm. So I was a little kid and I, um, I was Paul Revere for Halloween multiple <laughs> years. And I'd nerd, be so a nerd from birth. <laughs> I, I would go to the door and people would be like, oh, it's a little pirate. Oh, my like, God. <laughs> You're like, I'm I a patriot, like, not a pirate. <laughs> I would literally say, the British are coming. The British are coming. <laughs> and um, people would just stare at me and be like, okay. <laughs> so anyway, I've, but I've always loved history and reading books about American history. Um, so I, I think it was perhaps even more instilled in me that America was on the right side of world history and mm -hmm. that um, respect for the traditional American institutions was moral and you know, important. Um, so I think therefore getting to college, like, oh, I love history. I wanna learn more about how you know, the American Revolution was the greatest thing that ever happened in the history of the world. Mm -hmm. um, and getting there and starting to, to read, not from history textbooks, but from actual professional historians and what they were saying on, on these topics. And yeah. that's where I was like, wow, um, historians don't believe the things that I was taught. This is really interesting. I want to, you know. Yeah, can you explain a little world. bit more about that? Because I was reading on your website, like the gap between like truth and historical research and then the curriculum. So what causes that gap? Like, why is there this kind of disconnect between scholarly research and then what makes it into our schools? Um, yeah, so high school curriculum doesn't necessarily come from historians. Mm -hmm. okay? High school curriculum is going to come from um, like state board of education and elected officials. Mm -hmm. And those elected officials are, you know, almost never experts in education or certainly not experts in a certain field of American history. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but they were educated in the system and they might have ideas and feelings about Americans America's overall moral goodness that they believe is important for students to learn. Right. And so they start to have in their head ideas and morals that American kids should learn about America. Right. Um, and those find their way into the curriculum. And in order you know, to get passed, you have to, you know, it has to be voted on by elected officials. And those elected officials are, um, you know, responsible to their constituents and their constituents might you know, have certain ideas about American history that, you know, was, was fed to them. And you'll even hear it sometimes. There's a, a video of a, as a school board meeting in, in Texas, and they were talking about some part of the curriculum and said, well, you know, this historian actually doesn't believe what we're saying. And one of, one of the persons on the board is like, historians, like those socialists, like, no, we're not going to worry about what those socialists have to say. Right. Oh my God. Um, and I mean, this is where else in the where else in the curriculum, you know, in like math or science or well, mm -hmm. science. But, yeah, science is kind yeah. of a whole another yeah, yeah, okay. kind of world. Well, so maybe yeah, okay. I was about to say we would never, whatever. Um, <laughs> no, I hear you. So, um, in that way, the message of historians is not 
the most important thing that goes into our curriculum, right? Yeah, it's very politicized, it sounds like. It gets like. very politicized. So textbooks want to make books that will sell. That's their main objective. Mm -hmm. And they, um, so they get their, they get the standards from the state, right? Not necessarily historians. They get their standards from the state. And then they hire historians to write to fit those standards, uh -huh. right? So they're not just saying, hey, historians, you know, what do you think about the Civil War? Yeah, you know, as very, a starting point, what, very what should much kids influenced learn? by the state. Right? What should kids learn about slavery, right? And instead of starting with experts on slavery, we're going to start with, you know, maybe someone who is a CPA, right? They're an accountant and they got into government and they have these beliefs about America's goodness. And they think, you know, maybe if we just focus on slavery, our kids are gonna get the bad idea that America's a bad place, but we don't want that. Like we should teach our kids that America's a great place. Mm -hmm. So they start there. And now maybe a historian's gonna come in and criticize, but this is, you know, this is not, what, this is not the historical consensus on slavery at all, but it mm -hmm. confronts with what an elected official believes should be the narrative rather than the narrative. Yeah, it's kind of this clash between like American moral, like American exceptionalism and this kind of patriotic narrative and the sort of experts and facts and what really happened. Exactly. Um, exactly. And I guess that kind of falls in line with what recently happened with Trump's sort of new stance on education. I don't know if you heard with his oh, yes. patriotic education yes. curriculum. Yes. What are your thoughts on that? Um, so I would start by saying first off that's not how it works you know mr president we don't you know we don't teach kids patriotism right right um you, you can't teach someone to love something in that way um mm -hmm. that's not a you know that's not that's propaganda rather than a, you know an actual um you know the thoughts of a free thinking person right so i would just say actually have faith in our kids you take a room full of of students and i will ask them every year you know what does a good country look like? Mm -hmm. You know, what, what is a country that is worth your love and devotion? You know, what type of place would you be willing to fight for? And it's amazing what they list. Well, it's like, um, what's worth your respect? And I like, I love the way you said it, that like, what is a good country rather than like kind of pre preaching the ideology, like America is a good country. It instead right. promotes critical thinking and discussion of like, well, what does make a good country and what can we do to work towards that? Exactly. And, and, and the great news is, you know what the kids say? They say um, a country where, you know, everyone is treated equally and th mm -hmm. that there's definitely laws. We can't have chaos, right? But everyone, you know, the laws should apply to everyone equally. Um, there should be free speech. Um, a great country is a place where, you know, the best and the brightest people, the most talents and passion can, can get ahead. And you go through a long list and students basically come up with the Declaration of Independence or, you know, the preamble to the Constitution. Mm -hmm. um, and I say, that's such a more powerful way to start, not teaching students, like, hey, you must love this country, but asking them, what's worth your love? And then you know what they describe? They describe the founding documents of the United States. Exactly. And, and then promoting critical thinking of like, well, are we living up to the legacy that we're founded upon? And if not, how can we, I think it's just promoting like, rather than this consistent feedback loop of like, oh, well, you don't love America or you don't like you know, then you must be bad or we can't say that America's bad. Rather like go back to what was and is good about our country right. and try to fill in the gaps and holes for people who aren't represented and try to make it better rather than be like, well, you can't say that. 
Exactly. And, and, and so uh, true love for the country, I think true patriotism is a inherent understanding that it is these founding documents and the founding principles um, that should carry weight, mm-hmm. not any politician or right. any one man. So the, um, you know, the, the things that we love should be these values, right? right? And anyone who is getting in the way of those values, whether they represent the institution or not, um, we're not going to just going to give them respect if they're clearly um, running things that in, in a way that goes directly against our values, right? right? Then all of a sudden, they're no longer the heroes of the story. They're, um, they're really dangerous part of the story. They're threatening mm-hmm. the thing that we say that we love. Right? Exactly. Because it's, it's not a politician. It's not an institution. That's a very un-American, undemocratic way of thinking, right? Agreed. Um, it's these shared values that we love guess what? Our students don't need to propaganda to be told to love those things. That's what, that's what they want to see their country be. Yeah. Um, they want to see those values upheld already anyway. And it, it kind of turns the tables on, you know, who, who then gets our respect, but no one gets our respect blindly. It's, um, you know, we're constantly looking through history for heroes. I think one, one criticism I hear sometimes like anti-racist education is it's so meaningless because it tear down all these heroes for, for students and they don't have you know, things to look up for, look up to. And I, I say that's the complete opposite of what we're doing. We're actually looking for real heroes, people that we can be proud of. Exactly. Um, it's like this fictionalization of history. And it's like, oh, well, if you tear down the fiction that we've created, it'll like burst open everybody's reality. I mean, that's kind of what the, the, the rhetoric that um, President Trump was forwarding, like, oh, they're trying to tell us that America's bad and they're taking away everything that we've been taught over the past however many decades. It's like, right. it's not meant to deconstruct your reality and if it is then maybe you should question the foundations that your reality is based upon it's about kind of demystifying not only what actually happened but also like you said looking for real heroes and the real voices that led to equity in american society rather than kind of upheld the status quo and it's you know without a doubt looking at it that way the the real heroes that your curriculum is going to come up with typically are not going to be the people in the oval office um, mm-hmm. But they're going to be people who, despite despite all that's been set up against them, are are fighting or giving their lives or at least risking their lives to make sure that these principles that are at the core of who we are as a nation are true for everybody, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that is patriotic education. Um, Agreed. And then also when I hear that, I just really, I roll my eyes because I know if I get up in front of my students, um, and describe the story how how he you know how he says it in the executive order or how he said it on um, you know his speech at the National Archives mm-hmm. is just an immediate eye roll and just <laughs> this guy doesn't you know this guy doesn't know I mean what an insult to our kids they live in this country well <laughs> they yeah have, they have thoughts they have eyes their communities um, they can figure stuff out so if someone just comes in and tells them that everything's great. They're going to be like, okay, this well, class is not Yeah, it like reduces them to these vessels of like, okay, we're going to put all this information into you to propagate. Like, you know, we have to maintain this um, American greatness. It's like, these are living thinking, uh, critical thinking individuals who are the future of our country. Like they don't need to be steered towards one, like they can have, they should be encouraged to have their own perceptions and thoughts. I just, I think that's a greater problem in the American education system personally. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I totally agree. And I'm, I'm glad and, that your students have that um, will of independence. 
and and then again the, the thing is if you if you actually give them that the results that you're going to get out of it is actually what you're looking for anyway they're going to exactly you know and then all of a sudden it's from them and it's authentic mm-hmm. totally um i guess this moves me to want to start asking like where the genesis for this project particularly your your website and the curriculum the anti-racist yeah. apush curriculum um because i know that you said on your website that it kind of was birthed out of um your honors th- or your thesis for your graduate mm-hmm. degree so i'd just yeah. love to hear more about how that happened yeah so um i guess i was kind of discussing my original you know original entrance to college at 18 was a really this huge mm-hmm. i guess it's kind of the stereotypical fear of the conservative family, right? You raise this son, it's a good conservative boy, he goes off to college and you know, turns into a Marxist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, my, my grandma, when I went to Berkeley, she's like, oh my God, she's, she's going to Berkeley, she's gonna change forever. And I was like, exactly. yep. <laughs> so a lot, of, a lot of the uh, kind of internal process kind of happened for me, um, you know, as an undergrad. But then I, I mean, I just absolutely love history. I always have. And so a lot of my, a lot of my coworkers get their master's in education, which, mm-hmm. I, you know, there's a lot to learn. And obviously that's what I really do every day. Even I like to think of myself as someone who works with history, but in reality, I work educating, you know, young mm-hmm. minds. I had to get my grad degree in history because I, I just love the topic so much. And so I started um, at actually Missouri State. I um, started taking um, classes towards the U.S. History Masters. Early on, I uh, had a professor in um, African American history reading. Mm-hmm. It was basically just a readings in African American history for a semester. That was just so incredibly eye-opening. Um, and it's not not necessarily like I hadn't thought about any of that stuff before, because I, you know, I've been teaching and had gone through history class. But just the continual documentation. Mm-hmm. of ways that our curriculum was lacking right um and i so i teach ap u.s history um and i i really do think it's a great class but i teach um from a book called the american pageant which is the most popular common um ap textbook uh-huh. um i think um, they say like they had promotional material that said like 5 million Americans like get their, you know, get their U.S. history from American pageant. So it definitely um, has like a broad impact. It has a very, very big impact. And continually I was finding like, um, you know, in my grad classes, we'd start class like, okay, here's this kind of antiquated view of American history that historians have basically proven is totally wrong since the 1960s. Um, and you know, here's the primary sources that circulating for that long, right? Exactly. So, oh my God, some of this, some of this stuff is, I mean, historians haven't. No historian has like defended a thesis that would you know say this one thing in in years and years, and yet it just keeps getting the textbook. So, this is not the most egregious example, but you asked about my thesis, and this kind of turned into my thesis. Um, mm-hmm. It says in the chapter on the New Deal, for example. Um, and all, all AP students, the AP program tells you that you need to know that there's a demographic shift in the Democratic Party during the New Deal. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what the AP program tells you. And then so a teacher and a student should then go to their textbook and find, okay, like, what does that mean? Can you explain it? Right. 
And in this American pageant, it's set, this is most, one of the most popular US search textbooks. It just says simply this about the topic. I almost can think of the direct quote, but it's something like blacks who appreciated the relief checks, like ended their allegiance to the party of Lincoln. Yeah, I, I was reading about that actually, like just before we started this interview in your curriculum and I wanted to ask you. So yeah, please tell me right. more. And so that's all it says. So yeah. if I'm an AP student, I'm like, okay, I want to get my college credit. I got to know there's demographic shift. And then part of the AP curriculum is you have to know some analysis. So, you know, why, according to the book? Well, um, apparently African-Americans appreciated welfare checks. So yeah. that's why African-Americans are Democrats. And that really jumped out of the page to me. I was like. Like, that sounds like a huge generalization. Yeah, this, this sounds like an, an old-fashioned racist trope. So I'm kind of curious where are the historians you know who think that i would like to read their arguments i already know yeah, like where's the citation for that opinion i already know that uh, this is problematic and i'm going to disagree but i'm just kind of curious where are the historians based on mm -hmm. and so that kind of began my research just in the secondary literature and i mm -hmm. just started making lists because i continually found places in articles and reviews where historians specifically cite not that book but that idea Mm -hmm. as baseless and wrong and based on racist traditions. Right. Out um, about nine different studies that I really looked into, some of the, the biggest ones. And there was really only one historian who made that, that it was for economic reasons why African-Americans shifted to the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. um, and even that historian would never say the statement that's in the textbook. Uh -huh. And so I'm just like, you know, that just kind of blew me, it angered me, right? I'm like, if historians don't think that that is true. Then why is it in a textbook? What am I even teaching? Am I yeah. even teaching history? I'm not, right? I'm literally just continuing racist ideas mm -hmm. that aren't true. And I'm calling it history. And it's, it's not. Um, and then, so my research, I went in and, you know, looked at a lot of the uh, primary source literature out there on, um, so I specifically, I just read, basically years and years around election of um, like Chicago Defender, um, anyway, the African-American newspapers in Pittsburgh, New York, and Chicago, and then also the crisis from the NAACP. Mm -hmm. And every election year, it, all of the um, editorials, the letters from the readers, um, all of the news articles are all focused on what are the politicians saying about um, you know, kind of depending on the year, maybe like lynching laws or basically civil rights laws, voting rights, like what do the politicians say about those things? And those are just first and foremost. Mm -hmm. And you are not ever reading about economic conditions or, or at least very, very rarely. Um, and then you look at studies, how the white vote traditionally, um, specifically between the New Deal and let's say LBJ mm -hmm. in the 1960s, the white vote is, there's a direct correlation if the economy is good, the incumbent wins. If the economy is bad, so white, the white There's vote is Democrat, Republican based on the economy. Mm -hmm. And the African-American vote is completely breaking that pattern. Um, and it, you look at the black press, you look at, um, like I said, you look at what the NAACP is putting out there, and you can totally see why, because there's a debate about which party is the best on civil rights. Uh -huh. Even, one, one funny thing that really jumped out to me was um, 
Nixon and Kennedy are, are both agreeing on certain civil rights platforms going into 1960. Mm -hmm. And the black press is starting to joke. And there's one source that says, you know, maybe we should act like white folks and vote based on the economy for a change. And like, that was like a joke. Like as know? a parody or like, yeah, not, right, not as serious. A parody. And so anyway, nothing in the primary source literature, you know, really none of the experts would agree with that. So that's well, just, if anything, it seems like the evidence directly contradicts that statement. Yeah, it's a, yes. That, yeah, that's, yeah, excuse me if I didn't say that clearly. The, the evidence completely contradicts that statement. Um, and then so you just bring that in front of the students. Here's the textbook says, here's what these, you know, really short name, here's what these historians say about it. Here's the primary sources say. Kids pretty obviously say, wow, why does the textbook even say that? And then that's a great discussion. Why would the textbook say that? Um, right, and I think and then, that that's kind of what's missing from a lot of our curriculum in terms of like questioning sources and engaging in critical discussion and analysis of like, well, what are the push and pull forces? That, like, why would that end up in a textbook? I just, questioning ultimately, I think is like missing and not questioning for the sake of questioning to undermine everything, but questioning to engage in like a critical self-reflection of our society so that we can better ourselves. Exactly. And you said that very well. And I, I always tell my students, historians, okay, a uh, teenager comes into a high school history class, oh, I hate history, I gotta memorize all this stuff in the book. Mm -hmm. And from day one, I just repeat this over and over, historians don't memorize textbooks, historians no. argue with textbooks. That is what historians do. Right? Well, yeah, there's this huge misconception from a young age. Like, I, I always liked history, but I remember the part about it that I didn't like was like, God, I have to remember all these years and all these dates and all these names. And I never felt like I was engaging with anything or I certainly never engaged in primary source material in high school. It was really just understand the chronological narrative and make sure you know it. It's bare memorization. Exactly. So. so exactly. So we, we pick up our textbook and we say, this is an argument about whose stories are most important to tell. Mm -hmm. that's what it is when you're retelling and, them yeah right and and so exactly and so now we're we use our textbook to essentially argue against as mm -hmm. kind of this really base traditional overly patriotic not academic piece of work mm -hmm. um and so anyway that was that was the thing that I got really passionate about. And so while I was, while I was learning in grad school, I was continually like doing my homework and then going back and pulling up old PowerPoints that I had, you know, like, Oh, next year when I teach reconstruction, I have to add this quote or I right. have to add this character. Um, and so I just did that for out and grad school it took me a while because we were traveling. But so throughout like four or five years, mm -hmm. I was just continually updating my A push lessons. Um, right. And then, I had all this stuff, but it was really kind of for me and my students. And, you know, I love teaching and that that's always been my focus. Um, and then obviously this year, I think like a lot of principals and a lot of administrators and superintendents um, started to look cri uh, critically at the curriculum, right? Mm -hmm. at all Americans did, right? Um, or a lot of Americans did at the end of May with, the, you know, with the murder of George Floyd. And so I, I got a call from my assistant principal. Was, she was like, Matt, I know, you know, I've been in your room, you do a lot of great stuff, and I know this is a passion of yours, so I just wanna think about how, you know, how we can make sure that black voices are central 
mm-hmm. to our curriculums and not just something that's on, you know, on the edges or the periphery. She's like, I just want to think about that. And I, I would like you to think about how you can do a better job sharing, you know, with, with the rest of the department. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I mean, it was just, you know, kind of like immediately convicting to me. Like I got all this stuff and I know for teachers, you meet people, you're like, oh, you know, I'll give you all my stuff. And someone's like, I'll just, give, I'll just send you my Google Drive. Google Drive or whatever. Yeah. You know, and it's just, okay, here's 2000 documents, you know, half of them I don't use anymore. Um, or there's plenty of things at AP trainings where someone will give you their flash drive. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's, you know, you just don't have time to go through and mine it for, you know, what you want to use. Mm-hmm. And so um, I just kind of thought, well, what are, what are five things that I got directly from, from grad school that would benefit all, you know, teachers in my district and that, led to me asking someone how to make an ed blog, um, <laughs> essentially, you know, a coworker who, who did that type of thing. I was like, you know, what, what, what site do I use? And then one of my co-teachers kind of turned into like a mentor saying, oh, this is a really great idea. And you can't do this halfway. Like you need to spend your summer doing this because you got ideas. And yeah. he is related to like a web developer. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, my, my brother will do this for free for you. Um, That's awesome which is really awesome because I don't, you know, I can do Google Docs and that's about <laughs> it. Um, and so I kind of sent all my stuff and, and um, you know, I had a mentor saying, this is what teachers, you know, really, if you want to be helpful, you got to give them the full lesson plan. You got to give them answer keys. They got to be able to push print and just go. Right. You know just I mean? like use the curriculum like that. And so that was a little bit more than I had originally envisioned from talking to my principal, but Basically, I just got challenged to say, okay, you have good ideas and, and I, I, they're not really my ideas. They're essentially just, I take them from historians and try to say, hey, our book says this, but historians say this. Yeah. Um, so I, I do want to be careful about saying my ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, at least my ideas of organizing. Right. Like, How history. you're presenting the information that you found, basically. Not my, you know, not my historical philosophy at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I... And that's a, a note, the site, I really try to stay away from even like controversy because I, I think that would really weaken it if I chose, you know, most historians don't agree with that, but I have this one more radical historian that I like, so I'm going to throw this in there. Um, typically, it's what, if, I make a, if I make a lesson about it, it's because there's some historical consensus there. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, that's kind of where the site came from. And it it was really exciting because I just started putting stuff up there and I had no idea what the reception would be. And I just mm-hmm. started getting emails and having really cool conversations with people um, from uh, California, from New York. To, I mean, people just kind of all over. Um, I got to, ended up presenting at like a black history conference, wow. which is fantastic where I met some fantastic people and learned more about how to do stuff and to collaborate. So I got to, collaborate with a, a professor from, from Clemson. Um, it was just, it's been an awesome summer of realizing, hey, there's a whole world out there and so many people who are passionate about this. Um, so I, yeah, I kind of went into the project, like, does anyone really care? Does anyone have time to really use my stuff? But I was really given direction of, this is what teachers are looking for. Right. Um, so put it all there. And then everything's Google Docs, Google Slides, so you can copy. Mm-hmm. It's very accessible. Edit, you need for your curriculum. So um, 
I've learned some things about how maybe that wasn't the best idea because I get 50 emails a day from Dallas ISD students, like, you know, because some oh, like, like requesting oh, access or something because right, they want to edit for, you know, the oh. assignment. So, I don't know, but it's been cool. So technical difficulties. Yeah. yeah. Um, and speaking about the curriculum, I'd just like to ask a little bit more about like what's in the curriculum. And I know like you're speaking about making space for marginalized voices and um, that you like very much try to focus on things that there's historical consensus around so you can like effectively argue against like what's in a textbook. So um, yeah, just like talking a little bit about some of the lesson plans that are in there. I know that from what I looked through, there's a lot of stuff covering like Juneteenth, um, like the truth of the Confederacy, the whitewashing of the suffragette movement, just for a couple examples. Um, yeah. And just like including, like you said, quotes from um, people like Frederick Douglass on like, I was reading through the lesson plan on the American Revolution and like what fighting for liberty actually meant and how Frederick Douglass was like, this is not liberty for everyone. So just, I guess just explaining a little more about what the curriculum looks like and how it really um, highlights those marginalized voices and um, yeah, just how it works. Okay. Um, yeah, so one thing I, I know as an AP teacher, there's a time crunch to get through a lot of content and mm -hmm. also we're teaching skills, mm -hmm. um, how to do this type of essay and this type of essay and everything's like time for the students. So there's a lot of, a lot of writing and also a lot of content. So I know there's so many fantastic resources out there, the, the Zen education, um, project, um, you know, the 1619, um, education materials. I mean, the Smithsonian African American um, Museum, you know, this is, the Smithsonian has has some lesson plans. I do, and there's uh, Facing History is another really cool organization. There's so many programs out there, mm -hmm. but it can be overwhelming for an AP teacher because you look at it and you're like, okay, yes, the civil rights, there, there should be an AP civil rights movement class, right? Mm -hmm. Just or, for that one movement, like alone. Right? I mean, and so there's all these great detailed sources and so many great things I'd like to do. And I, I always joke with my kids, I wish a push was a four year class and then I could really teach you, you know, us history. Um, we don't have that. We, you know, we have uh, a few months together and we got to learn how to write essentially. Right. So where I think my resources can be helpful are essentially like to an AP teacher. And it's like, this is exactly where I plug it in. I do all of this stuff in my, classroom. So I'll take a topic where maybe it, it pains me or something like that to, to breeze over it so quickly, but I understand the pace that we got to get through. And so I'm like, okay, we're going to do, when we're teaching this topic, here's how I do it in uh, 60 minutes, or here's some supplementary materials that I do for 25 minutes. Um, so it's, it's definitely not a whole curriculum. Right? Mm -hmm. You can't like learn U.S. history from the materials I posted at all. No, it's just it's like all, supplementary. Yeah. Right. Like, okay, you're teaching your A-push curriculum and you, you know, are thinking, man, I just, I don't, I don't do, you know, this topic or that topic justice. And I'm looking for something more. I'm looking for some more anti-racist material specifically. And mm -hmm. so hopefully you can go to the site and you can just look, you know, what unit are you in? And I, say like this is what I do for objective you know 2.4 or 7.8 or whatever it is mm -hmm. and you can just really plug that in you know in a day mm -hmm. um so that's that's really the goal of it so it really everything's organized by the a push units um and you know, it's certainly not everything I do but it's kind of I I, I tried to prioritize of like okay I, I can I only have so much time this summer you know to get this ready for the next school year 
um, and I have, I have support and I really, you know, some people are counting on this getting out and I really want to do it. So what do I, what do I think are some of my absolute favorite lessons or the lessons that after doing this for you know, 14 years and I see kids in the hallway or I see kids a year later and they, oh man, that, that one lesson on, you know, you mentioned the suffragettes, right? The whitewashing of the suffrage movement. Um, there's so many, and it is typically females, but I'll see and we'll talk in the hallway or at the end of the year and they'll just like, wow, that, you know, that one was really eye-opening. I remember, you know, I have them actually make a sticky note and add it to our textbook um, about basically a, a black suffragette or um, you know, who's not in the textbook because our textbook is all uh, white women in the suffrage movement. And so mm -hmm. they put sticky notes of their stories. So like when you open our textbooks, you have all these sticky notes of oh, wow. like different. I and love that. The, but it's just, it's cool. Like, so I was looking through, I'm like, okay, what are some of the ones that my kids remember? Um, and so I chose those. So I, I definitely do more. And I, but I realized as the school year gets started, I'm not going to really have too much time to. Yeah. To You're trying to work through. within the constraints of the pace right. of the course. I, I know it's definitely like super quick from my. So I, I, I do know, like you look and I got feedback on that. Like you look at the topics and they're just not balanced, you know, and people are like, oh, you know, why don't you put more for this? And, you know, hopefully I, I will. But also, also, there's only so much time in a push you know, no i I'm mean like, i think it's great that you're you've started offering these resources so maybe over time if you can add to it and maybe people can like yeah. draw different for their lesson plans like maybe they'll take some and not others but i think right. it's it's great that it's a resource at all so yeah and, and i i do have looking online and there's stuff that i just will you know steal from other websites mm -hmm. and um, so I don't have anything. So I've gotten, you know, what do you do for reconstruction? And I don't have anything on reconstruction. Like this is one of the most important eras, especially if we're talking about like racial history of the United States. And like, you don't have anything on your site. You know, I was really you're disappointed to find that or something like that. And mostly that's because, well, I use something from Zen Education Project. I use something from Stanford's reading like a historian. So, you know, this, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't make my own stuff for that because there's great stuff out there. Yeah. Um, and I really do find it's more of the later units where there's not as, uh, there's great stuff out there, but it might be like a three-day lesson or something on mm -hmm. the Black Panthers, which yes, the Black Panthers deserve a three-day lesson, but there's a time crunch and, you know, you just can't do everything you want to do. Um, or maybe not so much focus on like the civil rights movement. I mean, yes, of course, civil rights movement, but the war on the civil rights movement that starts mm. immediately or during the civil rights movement, right? So mm -hmm. all of the kids, you know, it's common to see like Black History Month posters of Thurgood Marshall around the, you know, students know, oh, that's, you know, the lawyer and, you know, Brown v. Board. Mm -hmm. And then kind of that topic, school segregation is, well, that was solved, right? And then, oh, yeah. and then Thurgood Marshall gets on the Supreme Court. But we don't talk about how just a few years later, Thurgood Marshall's on the court and uh, Milliken v. Bradley is, is decided and Thurgood Marshall writes like the evil of Brown has not been cured. The Supreme mm -hmm. Court is perpetuating the evil of Brown. And this well, is a decade after Brown and we stop our story with, and then Brown v. Board solved everything. Thurgood Marshall even became a member of the Supreme Court. How just. Yeah, like, it's like this, no. oh, we solved everything that's like over that ended in the 1960s. It's, I feel like also, and this kind of relates to like teaching more closely to current, I don't know if I'd call it current history, but current events. 
um, getting up to the modern day because I feel like the way that at least I learned history, um, and I did have good history teachers, but just it's kind of taught, like you said, as, oh, well, that's all done. Like it ended here. It's not really looked at in like a long-term legacy of how this affects us, how it, how it continued and how it affects us even leading up today. Right. So um, it, it's a pretty simple thing to get kids' attention to show them that school segregation is increasing. Mm-hmm. Like, wait a second, the, the, the book ends with we solve that problem right yeah so what is it and, and kids are interested in that stuff right kids are you know we stop with the voting rights act um yeah and uh, you know there's probably i you know haven't looked i'm sure there's more resources on that you know um that was my goal by the end of the summer i didn't get my voting rights lesson hopefully i'll get that up but just documenting career on trying to prove that the voting rights act is unconstitutional right and so you can't just teach the voting rights act and say yay everything was solved right um, but that's what it ends up being it's like right. i think it's generalizations and kind of like easy solutions might not be the right word but it's like okay we're moving on from that it's not dealing with a more nuanced approach of like these very complex intersectional issues and how their legacies still live on and i think i don't know just kind of talking about how things aren't i just feel like things aren't taught in a complex manner like and it is, yes, I, and I know, you know what, in my classroom, things are not taught in a complex enough, you know, you just. But you can only strive for, right. for nuance, but I just mean, like, even striving for that is important, but I'm just saying from, from my experience in education, I, like, went to a very diverse high school that was majority black and brown students, and yet I still felt, I'm pretty sure we probably used the American pageant, or this American pageant, and I still didn't really feel like whether it was like in my literature classes or in my history classes that those narratives were really being prioritized. Right. And I, I am hopeful, especially kind of dipping my toe in the waters of not being so insulated in just my 150 students, but really connecting with other teachers. There is so much, there's so many people who are um, so passionate about these topics and I'm really, really hopeful for the future of American history education. My students and their views on, on different topics and the way that they can find nuance. And so there is a lot of hope as well, even though it, it is frustrating, especially when you hear our country's leaders calling what I do child abuse. <laughs> and that and yeah. specifically about specifically i think he was talking about the 1619 project but um yeah he i remember I mean, you know, saying just, it was like unpatriotic right and so i i just think that can only come from someone who did not have a very nuanced view of what patriot means in the first place so and you know what i think our kids have a more complex view of that already at 16 and 17 so that gives me a lot of hope so yeah Definitely trying to, even with the frustrations coming at it from an optimistic or growth related perspective is always good. Yeah. Oh, one thing I noticed that I wanted to just briefly talk about, because I think you've touched on it already, is like you have your three steps to create an anti-racist history class. And I was wondering if we could like go through them and say like, how can you apply these like steps to the curriculum or like the way you teach for other teachers? Um, yeah. Just because they're kind of like ideologically re related, like, for example, recognize that all races are inherently equal because race is not a biological identity or number two, yeah. recognize how deeply saturated our history is with racist policies and how prevalent racism is in today's society. So, like, for example, these thoughts 
um, how can people like teachers specifically like apply these perspectives in their teaching methods in their pedagogy? Yeah, so um, the, the first one, and they, they do kind of go in order um, mm -hmm. because you really have to start with the first one. And that's mm -hmm. why I, um, so in the first, you know, like the first week of school, I, one of the lesson plans that I've been given actually the most feedback on is really about talking about how uh, race is not a biological reality. And mm -hmm. that is having just a little bit of international perspective. It even makes this more interesting to me to talk about because going to the Middle East and doing these lessons, because I was actually teaching U.S. history mm -hmm. um, to Arab students when I lived in the Middle East. And this was something that they could not grasp why Americans were so obsessed with race. Mm -hmm. And it was such an interesting thing because if you're in the Middle East and, and you talk about, you know, like what, what an Arab is, for example, um, and there are, you know, Arab, Arabs with a lot of skin pigmentation and Arabs with almost no skin pigmentation, but they're all Arab, right? And so to, they don't have to unlearn, a student, you know, my Arab students did not have to unlearn as much about skin pigmentation somehow determining your um, ideas or abilities or preferences, right? Because mm -hmm. right. that to them was obviously just not a true thing. You know, mm -hmm. skin pigmentation was just kind of random. And so our American kids definitely don't don't have that. You can tell them, well, race isn't real. And at first, the reaction from a lot of students is like, yeah, okay, but you know, um, Asian students are more like this, or black students are more like this. You know, you know this, this will come from black students and Asian students, right? Um, and so to say, no, this is, these are literally not biological categories. Mm -hmm. And so just talking about that is so important. Um, yeah, because I, I agree. society does not reinforce that. Society is going to be fighting that lesson all year long. So one thing, I, one thing I do is I just have. Um, and we talk about how you know race is not real. We talk about genetics are real, and so I just show them actually pictures of four different women: uh, one from Ghana, one from Mozambique, one from France, and one from Indonesia. Mm -hmm. And so we say, you know, which which ones are you know which women are of the same race. And they typically say, you know, the woman from East Africa and the woman from West Africa. Um, and then, you know, it's a trick question. There's no such thing as race. And they say, okay, but DNA, you know, that is real. Genetics are real. So who do you think has got a more similar genetic code? Mm -hmm. And we talk about how all humans have like extremely similar genetic codes. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, there are, there are some similarities in certain groups. So almost all students are going to say that the woman from East Africa and the woman from West Africa have the same genetic breakdown or a more similar one, right? And that's not true because of ancient trade routes and how history has worked. The woman in, women in France and women in Ghana are more likely to have similar genetics than a woman from Southeast Africa and a woman from Indonesia. Yeah. Um, and that's really hard for them, like no way, no way, you know, because what they see, they see skin pigmentation and they just assume that that means a lot genetically. Right. And it absolutely doesn't. So I experienced I, the same thing in my first semester of college. Okay. Um, yeah. I took a sociology class and it was a similar experiment of high school students actually taking their own DNA and comparing their genetic codes. Did you see the PBS? Um, yeah, the PBS? yeah, yes, yeah. 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 Uh -huh. And it's like, I love that. it's, um, I think it was a, it was a diverse group of students, um, Asian, yep. um, African-American, Hispanic, yep. white. Um, and all of them assumed like, oh, well, if I'm, you know, 
Latino, then maybe my um, genetic code will be more similar to another Latino student. And then they were shocked when maybe, no, they had more genetic similarities with an African-American student or so on. And I remember being confronted with like the whole race is not a biological determinant factor. And not that I had ever been like, so having con the conviction like, oh, race is real, like it has to be real. It's just something that's kind of ingrained into our cultural upbringing of like a, a given fact of like, oh, you know, your race is a big part of how society views you, which right. is true, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a biological truth. And I just think that it's so, uh, such a loss that we don't learn that until college. I mean, I think right. it, it really prevents us from critically understanding social inequities from a younger age. Right. And, and so I, I think that is, that, that requires a lot of conversation and kind of spills out throughout the week. Kids will kind of come back the next day and ask questions. Mm -hmm. um, and so we really have to say, and we, this is like the whole slide um, just has these few words. So every student knows we're like, yes, when you say race isn't real, you have to be careful with that. Um, yeah. Because in America, race is a very, very real political category. Right. Right. About who gets to have power traditionally in our system. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we say race is very real for American politics, but it's mm -hmm. not biologically real. So right. if it is real, but America created it. Um, so we say, you know, racism is real, but race is not. Um, but you have to understand that race isn't real because racism does not come from race. Right? Yeah. Race isn't real. So racism actually invents race. And so yeah. once we realize that you know, these biological categories aren't real, then, um, you know, now we are ready to move on and just talk about how, okay, they're not real, but American society has been obsessed with them, you know, American law and American, you know, politics. Mm -hmm. So then we have to acknowledge that. And then we find, finally get to, okay, and a lot of this stuff is still continuing. And we talk about how if race is like a determining factor um, in America, still today in America for, um, you know, the gap, um, you know, wealth gap or opportunity gaps in education. Mm -hmm. um, and those just are kind of proof that American racist policies are still strong uh, because those things, those are made up categories, but they continue to exist, right? Yeah. So they continue to exist ideologically, even if they have no yeah. basis in biological foundation, right? Exactly. Yes. No, I, so, I thank you for pointing out that distinction. I think that's really important to make clear. If, if any gaps, if any gaps in achievement um, exist, it is the system's fault, right? There are only two explanations for that, right? And it's that people are actually different and have different abilities, which is an incorrect biologically and moral idea, right? That is a racist idea. Mm -hmm. And so the only, uh, so there's that option or there's, well, wow, the system has produced some really seriously messed up results. And yes. we're going to talk about those. And that's what this class is about. And I, I have found if you start a class like that, students are like, I'm in, let's learn this stuff. You know, yeah. kids are smart. Kids actually like to do work and discuss. They actually do like school, but um, they have to feel that it's relevant. Um, and if mm -hmm. you start talking about this stuff, they're like, yeah, okay, I see that. That makes sense. That helps to explain the world that I see. Right. Now, now we have a class. Um, well, because it's, it's, it's culturally relevant and it's also, 
encouraging them to engage in their own personal experience to help kind of analyze what's led to the world that we have today. So I feel like it also inherently values their voices more as people engaging with this rather than having it shoved down their throat. Exactly. So. Yep. Um, and I guess this leads me to my next question, which is because you mentioned like talking about the specific opportunity gaps in the system that has resulted from this. Um, and you mentioned on your website, the five steps to shrink the opportunity gap. Um, yeah. So, and I think some of you have five and then some of them you have resources for like the letter to encourage mm -hmm. um, like underrepresented students to enroll in AP courses, removing yeah. prerequisites for AP history, um, informing students early about AP opportunities, eliminating summer work and creating welcoming environments. So just like telling us a little bit more about how this works in application and why it's important. Okay, um, so the thing that I, I actually went to professional development, um, mm -hmm. which was led by a former Washington State Teacher of the Year, Nate Bowling. He's a brilliant AP Gov teacher. Mm -hmm. And he just simply started by saying, look at your hallways and look at your classrooms. Mm -hmm. And if your AP classrooms have a different racial breakup than your hallways, then you are perpetuating racism. Yeah. Right. You might, you might even talk in your history class about, you know, we got to take down racism and all this stuff. But if your hallways and your AP classrooms don't look the same, then you're just perpetuating the system. And that really, um, you know, that, that really spoke to me. I was like, you know, wow, you know, I care about these issues, but um, at our school, our white students were more represented in AP classes than they actually were in the school population. And mm -hmm. that's a big problem, you know, yeah. and that is sustaining this. I don't like, and achievement gap really isn't the right word. I think opportunity gap really, mm. that is Definitely. the right word. Um, and so we just kind of looked at systems and I got a lot of, a lot of these ideas is I think came from from that conference or just talking to a lot of other people but in AP um, teachers are gatekeepers too often right uh, the same type of students get nudged hey you should take an AP class or same type of students like you know it might be a lot for you um, and just the things that we say and we just have to stop that and make it open to everyone we got to reach out to students and actually I'm very very excited this is actually my my first year where my a, all of my AP sections actually mirror almost exactly our school's um, population. So that's great. Uh, that was like, all right, that's awesome. So yeah. a lot of these steps help help get there. And so um, I definitely stand by some of these things. One thing that gets a lot of pushback is summer work. Mm -hmm. um, just vote, you know, we can't, you can't make it easier. But I just argue, I, I got rid of summer work a few years ago. Mm -hmm. and my AP scores didn't change at all. Really? So I'm like, why, you know, why are you giving this work? Yeah. And we know that because of the racist policies in our country's history, we have um, a very racial, um, very wide racial gap in wealth mm -hmm. in, in our community as well. Um, and that changes a lot of things to a student's home life and, mm -hmm. you know, parents having the ability to go over homework or go over systems. And so I think summer work is a test of how structured your home life is. Um, yeah. And that is, it's not your abilities, it's not your ability to, to succeed in an AP class. And so I cut out summer work and I was like, oh my gosh, nothing changed. Yeah. Um, so that one gets the most pushback and I would fight anyone on that topic. You well, don't yeah, because it's, it's not about making it easier, it's about making it more equitable and accessible. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's not needed. Get rid of summer work. <laughs>
And um, you have this letter um, that people can use to like explicitly invite students of color to enroll in AP courses um, and also removing prereqs, um, if you want to talk a little bit about that. Um, yeah, so actually the AP program, the College Board does a better job at telling you this if you go to a training, you, you can't gatekeep. Basically, these aren't even my ideas. They mostly come from College Board mm -hmm. um, ideas about you know, trying to, to be more intentional mm -hmm. about equity. Um, and so there'll be like honors classes that kids have to get into or like you had to have a B plus or something. Right. You know, those types of things are not representative always of students' ability. It might be, right, that a, a student walked into a class Teachers started off day one with some patriotic propaganda. The kid, too, you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know. Like, it's hard to say. We'll see, see how it goes. And then I will support you. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of work to be done. We got to roll up our sleeves and get to it. Um, but if, if you are clear eyed about what the expectations are at the beginning, I want everyone in here. Yeah, definitely. And speaking of your students, like, what impact has this had on them like with the way that you talk about these issues or what feedback um, have you gotten about the website in particular and the curriculum on there? Like I know you've been mentioning it a little bit throughout our conversation, but just how has this impact been um, received? Yeah, so I think my, my students, so the, the website is, is you know, definitely new. So that, that feedback just from mostly other teachers, um, but just saying, you know, this is really helpful because I, I care about these issues. I want to do more of this stuff, um, but I don't know how to fit it into the curriculum. And then mm -hmm. so people typically appreciate that. I just say, hey, this is exactly the day that I do it. This is exactly where I do it in the curriculum. Mm -hmm. um, this is exactly how I do it. Here's all the handouts and the whatever you need. Mm -hmm. And so there's been just a lot of feedback of people wanting this stuff. It, it just wasn't out there. And, you know, maybe yeah. they go to the Zen project and there's this great lesson on something really detailed, but they're like, how do I fit this in the AP curriculum? Yeah. So yeah. the fact that it's made by an AP teacher makes it a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. Yes. The Zen education project can, can tackle a subject that I wish I had all the time to do, but you know, I also, people are going to be really supportive of my anti-racist work as long as my kids are also achieving high scores. Right. So yeah. Mm -hmm. I have to find that balance. So I can't get into everything I want to, but here's a way where you can do your job, meet parents, students, admin expectations, and also do a lot of anti-racist stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of the stuff is, is stuff I've been doing in class for, you know, the last 10 years or, you know, especially since grad school for some of them in the last six, seven years. And I think my best feedback is that my, my AP classes continue to grow in numbers and I have a great rapport with kids and maybe kids can't even articulate it, but they just know that this is a valuable class. That's maybe good. they can't see why everything they have to learn is, oh, why do I got to do this? But at least they come in here and they know, oh, this, you know, this is essential stuff for learning and for my future. And so yeah. um, I get that feedback from kids and I, I, I know I'm on the right track, so. Yeah, that's great. Um, and, and I guess like a final question to like just send off with, because um, we've talked a lot about the gap between like the truth of history or at least like what the consensus is from historians and then the curriculum. Um, so do you see like what, what would the ideal solution to that problem be from your perspective? And then like within the bounds of the system we currently have, um, what can teachers do um, whether it's using this curriculum or changing the way that they enact their pedagogy, et cetera. 
Um, I, I think that those are some really great questions and there are definitely reasons why I love history more than administration issues because I like to, I like to present, hey, these are problems, right? But admin and uh, school boards have to fix these things. Obviously, it's a little more complicated. Simply, I would like history curriculums to come from the consensus of historians. That's it. Um, they're the experts. They have dedicated their lives to these topics. And I'm not just talking about like, a, here are the old curriculums, or here's what's in the textbook, or here's what our community believes students should learn. No, like, and then have a, you know, historians on a panel saying yes or no, but literally being like, okay, these are things we're going to teach. And the standard is going to be written by a panel of historians. And I would, and so I think this would be the leading historians from the country. And so there could even be a national U.S. history curriculum, but people would really freak out about that plan. So that one's not practical, but that's my vision of it. No, I, I think that makes sense. I mean, I get what you mean about like the practical and technical uh, planning of it, but I, I it, at the bare bones of it, I agree that it should be written by historians. Yes. And I, I don't think that it should be a democratic process. Mm -hmm. So um, kind of uh, Plato's idea of philosopher kings for this one, let's get the experts to just make our history curriculum based on the experts. And it doesn't matter what people feel like it should say about the Confederacy, but here's what historians actually know and believe. So, mm -hmm. um, and there was another part to that question, but. Um, just what can other teachers do like in terms of. Oh, um, what do we do if it, if it doesn't change? Well, so honestly for me, um, I actually love the American pageant because it is such a powerful tool. Um, it's such a tangible thing to argue with and state standards are the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. So um, AP US history, like look at, look what the standards say. We put them up there and I feel like the students really feel like, oh, now we're really doing something. We're, we're challenging this rather than like, you know, memorize 1.2a, like, no, look at 1.2a. Is that even right? So I, I say use, use the standards as they are, use the textbook as they are. Um, they're fantastic tools, right? Yeah. If I, if I got a textbook, yeah, I don't, my job, I think would almost be harder if it was like, okay, now this is the truth. Everyone just memorize this because kids mm -hmm. hate that anyway. So as long as I have a textbook yeah. that has some inaccuracies in it, it makes my job easier because I can hook the kids and just arguing with the textbook, which they typically think is a pretty cool thing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed talking to you. And I think the work that you're doing is great. Um, yeah, thanks for everything. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. Um, my friends and family get sick of talking about anti-racist lesson plans. So mm -hmm. people are like, oh, good. You can talk to someone else about it. <laughs> Thanks so much once again to Matthew Reisman for joining us here on What Can You Do? I hope our conversation has offered some insight into what teachers are doing to confront hegemonic narratives in the classroom and how teachers can help students identify and expose racism or bias in the curriculum while also balancing the demands and pacing of AP standards. If anything, the work he does with his students, as well as the materials he has compiled on his ed blog, Anti-Racist A-Push, demonstrate the importance of questioning in education, and how it can function as an extremely potent learning tool which empowers student voices. 
Asking questions and engaging in critical analysis of the generalized narrative of American history we see in our textbooks encourages our youth to both engage with history in a tangible way and also to reflect on the legacies of that history in our modern society. Strategies like these will ultimately lead to more well-rounded and independent students and a better democracy as a whole. Thanks so much for joining us today, and I'll see you next week.